And if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 all the way through to 61. Now last week, we saw the curtain torn in two and that a path was made back to God again and reconciliation was made between God and man by Jesus Christ. Well, one of the things to, to, to remember about this sacrifice, which is what it was, Christ on the cross was, Hebrews tells us, a sacrifice. But it was public. It wasn't hidden away in a corner. It wasn't like the sacrifice that the high priest would carry in behind the curtain on the Day of Atonement when he, he went there alone and it was only him. This was out in the open. It was at a, a busy place at crossroads outside of Jerusalem for everyone to see. Jesus' death was public. Romans tells us in Romans 3 he was placarded like a, like a billboard put up for everyone passing by to know God was advertising that salvation had come, that the kingdom's doors were open wide. Paul tells us later in Acts, in the, in the final chapters of the book of Acts, speaking to King Herod, he says, you know these things. Because they didn't happen in a corner. It was well known and well attested to what God had done. He wanted people to see the cross. But even more noticeable on that day were those signs accompanying Jesus' death. It's very difficult for an earthquake to go unnoticed. It's hard for the sky going dark for three hours to be missed. And God is refusing to let His Son's sacrifice go ignored. I mean, if, if anything, it tells us God wants people to know about His Son. He wants them to know about the atonement. He wants them to know about the cross and His coming and His teaching and His gospel. And as we'll see this morning, He wants them to know about the Son's exaltation. Because these verses, 20, chapter 27, 51 through 61, the Lord begins, God the Father begins to exalt Christ the Son. So let's read, starting in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that 
you would show us wonderful things in your word this morning because there are wonderful things in your word always. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see them, that the eyes of our mind would see them, that we would understand them in our hearts, that you would convict us of truth and righteousness. And I pray that you would exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our minds more this morning than when we came in. And that we would leave with a greater appreciation and a greater love for what you have done for us and for a greater adoration of your Son who gave everything to redeem us to Him. It wasn't, it wasn't a force. It wasn't a, a decree on a piece of paper. Lord, you sent your one and only beloved Son who redeemed us from the curse of sin so that we would live with you and be reconciled to you forever. And now we're going to spend eternity at your table in your presence, loved and loving you. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would bless our morning that we would encounter you through your word. Thank you that you are with us always. Amen. When we consider the advent of Jesus, that's the advent, what we celebrate at Christmas time, when we think about that, there are many things that come to mind. We think of the incarnation, God becoming man, taking on flesh. We think of the word Emmanuel, the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. We think of the Lord's descending from heaven to earth, and, and there are many other things that come to mind, but usually when we think at Christmas, we don't think of the Lord's humiliation. Now certainly at the cross, the Lord is humiliated. He is disgraced and He is degraded by His enemies. But listen, His humiliation it doesn't start there at the cross. It starts all the way back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Now the cross is, to be sure, the height of it, but it's not the start of it. It begins at His birth, and how could it not? What would be more demeaning than for the ageless, timeless Creator God to become a little baby in the womb? And from there to actually be a baby, helpless and dependent in every way on his mother and his father. And then to grow up and experience all the challenges that come with living in a fallen world. Experience hunger. To experience sleeplessness. Hard work in a cursed world, a world he made good no less. To experience pain from injuries and Exhaustion and splinters. And once his ministry began, he endured the constant unbelief of the people. The constant spurning and rejection of those nearest to him. Now, uh, what would that be like to the one who, while in heaven, angels obeyed him readily and without question? He spoke and it was done. How degrading would it be for the king of the universe to be challenged and debated and belittled by his opponents? I mean, the whole of the incarnation. 
from Matthew chapter 1 until Matthew 27, verse 50. From his conception to his death was a humiliation for the Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 51 marks a turning point in the gospel where we begin to move from humiliation to exaltation. Now sometimes we think of, when we think of the exaltation of Christ, we think only in terms of what happens three days later at the resurrection. But that's not true. The resurrection is glorious and Christ is exalted higher and then higher still in His ascension and higher again when He sits down next to to the, next to his father at the right hand of majesty on high but that exaltation begins right here the moment his work is finished is the moment humiliation is over and the father begins bestowing dignity on his son fitting and appropriate for the Messiah and we see this these, these first fruits of his exaltation in four scenes in these verses and the first are the miracles or the signs that accompany his death. We've seen one in depth already, the, the tearing of the veil in the temple so that a, a new way is opened for the first time since creation for the Lord and his people to dwell together again. But there are other displays of divine power in this passage. There are earthquakes that shake the ground and the city of Jerusalem. Now, throughout all of the prophets... And in various places in the Bible, earthquakes are a sign of the judgment of God. There are three great earthquakes in the book of Revelation, all accompanying His judgment. In Isaiah, when the Lord returns to judge, the earth quakes and trembles in fear. The same thing happens in Ezekiel. In Job, earthquakes express God's anger as though the mountains themselves were shaking and afraid in His presence. And here, earthquakes come at the death of His Son. Why? Why is there an earthquake here at the cross? Is it, is it just a display of, of God's presence? God is here. Is it the Lord's anguish at the loss of His Son? Why does the ground tremble? Have you thought, why an earthquake? Is it just to get people's attention? It was not for any of those reasons. And it's certainly not another round of the wrath of God poured out on Christ. You think, well, it's an earthquake. If that's a judgment of God, it's judgment on Jesus. No, that was finished in verse 50. And with that work finished, there couldn't possibly be any more judgment left for Christ for His people. Which means the earthquake is an expression of the judgment of God, but not against His Son, but it is against the city of Jerusalem itself. It's against those who put Jesus to death. This is a foreshadowing of 70 A.D. when the Lord would bring the legions of Rome to reduce the city of Jerusalem to blood and ashes. And when the ground shakes so violently that rocks break in two, it is a warning to the city that now they are under God's wrath. That now they will be held accountable for what they have done and what they have done with Christ. Or maybe you wonder, well, I thought God was orchestrating all of this. How can God rightly be angry at the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin when all that they did was what He ordained them to do? Right? Isn't that what Peter prays in Acts 4.28? They gathered together to do what you, O Lord, had predestined. 
to take place, how can they be held accountable for what God ordained them to do? Well, God in ordaining it, He is not culpable for it. And what I mean is he, he didn't twist their arms and make them do this. Everything they did, they did with no violation of their will. They wanted to put Jesus to death. They wanted to kill the Son of God. And God didn't have to plant that thought into their minds. We read it this morning in Psalms 14. All have gone astray. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. They turn against the Lord. No one seeks God. Well, Paul quotes this in Romans, and when he quotes it in Romans, he's, he's showing the people that there really is nothing good in us. And anything that is righteous in us, that comes out of us, is only done because God's hand is at work in His people. And so what God is doing here is not making or creating new sin inside of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have plenty in there on their own. And God is withdrawing His hand from them and letting them go. He's not restraining their wicked schemes. This is how He hardens Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. He didn't create new evil in Pharaoh. When you read God hardens Pharaoh's heart, He simply removes His restraints. And without the common grace of God upholding Pharaoh, preventing him from becoming even worse than he could be, he sinks even further into his own depravity, so much so that he would bring the entire nation of Egypt to ruin in order to keep his force of slave labor. It's difficult sometimes to understand, but it is common in the Scriptures. God ordains that sin happen and men who carry it out are held accountable for it. I mean, consider the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. In Habakkuk 1.6, God makes very clear He is raising up this nation and He is putting them in a position of power so that they will be His instrument in judging the nation of Judah. God prepared the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He made them strong. And then He sent them to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And then in Jeremiah 51... God promises that because of the wickedness of the Babylonians and what they did to Jerusalem, they will be judged by Him and He will raise up another nation to do to them what they did to Israel. And, and here, it's the same in this earthquake. God has promising to vindicate His Son by punishing those instruments of His death. And the earthquake is a picture of the judgment that will come to the city of Jerusalem. God is not going to allow the rejection and mistreatment of His Son to go unpunished. God does not allow anyone who rejects Christ to go on forever getting away with it. God sends an earthquake to warn the people of Jerusalem He is not pleased with what they have done. Now, the next miracle in this passage is probably the most, probably one of the most confusing passages in the Bible, certainly in Matthew's Gospel. Old Testament saints, they uh, rise up, they're resurrected out of their tombs, and they appear to people all over the city. This passage poses a lot of questions, doesn't it? 
Why is there no mention of this in any other gospel? Did the people who were raised, did they die recently or had they been dead for a long time? And they're the, they're the old saints like Abraham and Moses. Did they come out immediately after Jesus' death or was it really not until the resurrection three days later and they sat in the tombs waiting patiently? Or did they rise with bodies like Jesus and after a few days they were transported up to heaven? Or did they rise with bodies like Lazarus that died and again? Well, we don't know the answer to any of those questions. And we don't know much of the details about what happened. And we don't know why it isn't in any other gospel. But we do know what it means. This is a picture of what Christ accomplished. The torn veil pointed to the access. Now we can enjoy with God. The, the earthquake is the judgment promised on those who reject Him. And this is the promise that awaits those who trust in Him. They will be raised just like these saints. It's a promise that was made all the way back in Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, there were many prophecies about the future of God's people. And one of them, the one fulfilled here, comes from Ezekiel 37. And in that chapter, you're probably familiar with it, Ezekiel steps out into a valley of dry bones and God asks him, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a very wise answer. He doesn't doubt God and say no. And he doesn't presume upon God's power and say yes. His reply, you know, O Lord. And so the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy, to preach over the bones. And he does. And when he does, they come together. So sinews begin to attach. The bones begin to come together and form skeletons. And sinews begin to attach the bones. And muscles begin to form on the bones. But there's still no life. God commands him to prophesy again or to preach again for the breath, for the Spirit to come into them. And when Ezekiel speaks, it does. And the valley that was full of dry bones, very dry bones, now is full of men and women and children standing uh, uh, on their feet at attention. It says, and behold, the, uh, the, the valley is full of a great host. And then in verse 11, so God's going to say, what does this mean? Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So this passage, Ezekiel 37, and the one that comes before it in Ezekiel 36 they tell us a lot about how the Spirit of God works. In fact, these are actually the passages that Jesus is speaking about when He talks to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. But I want you to see what's being said right here in verse 11. What do the people say of themselves? They say, our bones are dried up. We are cut off. All hope is gone. They've been waiting 
and waiting and waiting for the salvation of God. In fact, they've been waiting so long that now, this, there's a picture being painted, they have been sitting and waiting so long that now all of their, all of their skin is dried up, their organs have wasted away, and all that remains are disjointed bones, and they have almost turned to dust. It's as though if the dead could speak, they would say, Lord, you have forgotten about us. You have left us in the tombs. You have promised so much, but now all our hope has perished with us. And God tells Ezekiel, no, Ezekiel, even if they were like bones broken apart and scattered through the wilderness, not two bones joined together, I am going to restore them again. And God is going to do something. And when He does, they will be born again. They will be reassembled and life returned. And God will resurrect them. And He'll bring them back into the land. And when He does, they will know He is the Lord God who keeps all of His promises. And the sign of that promise, the sign of this promise being fulfilled twice in those few verses... Verse 13, it says, Then you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up out of them. Verse 12, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Do you see why Matthew thought it was so important to include this? Because it is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that brings about the fulfillment of this great promise of God. And that those without hope those dead and dried up will be made alive again. They aren't left hopeless. They aren't left abandoned. Even if it's been a thousand years and they feel like they're dried up completely, God will never forget His Word. He will never let His promises fail. He will bring all who put their hope to, in Him to resurrection and to glory, no matter how long it takes, and this all because of what Christ has done. And Christ is exalted because these people are given to Him. The army standing in the, in the valley is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are His people and He is their God. That is what His death accomplishes. And it's a, an accolade, an honor given to Christ at His death. Now you will receive your people. This giving of people to Jesus is amplified in the, in the second scene we see of His exaltation. And that's in the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion and those with Him. So the Jews, those who should have been ready to receive the Lord, those who had the prophets and had Moses and knew that He was going to come, when He does, what do they do? They mock Him. They call into question His deity. They call into question His sonship. They hate Him and seek to put Him to death. But this Gentile, who as far as he knew was just putting to death another run-of-the-mill criminal, he saw the sign over his head. He wasn't concerned with the political machinations of the day. He would have not known anything that the Jews did. When he sees what happens here, he confesses with certainty that Jesus was the Son of God. 
all of the signs and the miracles happening, they should have given the people of Jerusalem pause. Right? If you went out and somebody said, I am the Son of God, and then you said, yeah, right, and you struck them dead, and then the sky grew dark, and the whole world began to shake, and people began to come up out of their graves, you might have second thoughts about what you've done. You should be asking yourself, maybe I made the wrong decision here. Maybe God is displeased with what I've done, and I should repent. Maybe this man was telling me the truth. It's hard to believe that that's not what happened. Not in the Sanhedrin, certainly. They were as hard-hearted as ever. They steeled themselves against all of the wondrous signs that should have filled them with fear. They didn't have any concern at all. I mean, you want to know how hard their hearts were? They see all of this happen. All of it. Jesus tells them earlier, three days, I'm coming back. Jesus does come back from the grave. The guards come and tell the Pharisees he did come back from the grave. Angels came out of heaven itself, rolled the stone away, and there he was. We just dropped down like we were dead. Couldn't even move. So they have first-hand accounts of what's happened. These Pharisees do. They've seen all of the signs. Do you know what they do when they hear the report? Here's some money. Tell everybody else that the disciples came and stole the body. This is why Jesus says, you remember the, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man says, just send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. Moses tells him, or Abraham tells him, not even if someone comes back from the dead would they believe. The heart is so hardened. That's how the elders of Israel respond. Those who should have been most ready to receive Jesus, how they respond when he is resurrected. That's how they respond when they see, go tell everyone that the body was stolen. But that's not how the Roman officer does. He sees the sky grow dark. He sees the earth shake. He sees the rocks split. He sees the tombs open. And he confesses like Peter, truly this was the Son of God. Well, what a contrast between the two. Those who cursed him in his death, they mocked his sonship. They mock his relationship with God. They hurl doubt into his mind. But this man, when he saw everything took, take place, he believed. And notice this. These are the first words about Jesus after his death. This is the first testimony after the cross. And it comes from the mouth of a Gentile who now believes with the little information he has, he believes that Jesus was who he says he was. I don't know how much he knew, but certainly it was a lot less than those who killed Jesus. And with the little bit he knew, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. What a comfort to us. Right? You don't have to know much to be a Christian. You don't have to know all kinds of, of things about the Bible and about Jesus. But you do need to believe what you know. And a child can say, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for me. All of this, it harkens back to the second psalm. In the second psalm, it says, the nations rage against God. They hate their king. They want to destroy this king. But God 
laughs at them, laughs at their efforts to dispose of his king, and then he says, I have placed my king on Zion, and when he does, he gives to his Messiah the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. So here's the picture. All of the leaders surround Christ to destroy him, and they do. But God laughs. And he sets his king on Zion, sets his king up in the heavenly places. And when he does, he gives that king the nations as his inheritance. And that word nations, it's, it's not the same way we think of when we think of the word nations. When the Jews spoke of the nations, he meant all people from every ethnicity and people group in the world. And those nations are being given to Christ. And you see this in the Roman officer. The moment Jesus dies, this promise begins to be fulfilled as the nations begin to turn to Him. And He's exalted, not just as the King of the Jews, but as the King of the kings and the Lord of the nations. God is not just taking the Jews from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity. He is taking everyone from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity and nation and giving them to His Son as His possession. This is the start of it. But it's not just the centurion either. It's those who are with Him as well. Those who did the actual nailing of the hands and the raising of the uh, cross and the casting of the lots for His clothing. They joined their commanding officer in confessing Christ. And again, we don't know how much they understood, but they believed the little bit they knew. And in believing it, they rebuked the whole leadership of Israel because they knew a lot. They knew where the Messiah would come from, from Bethlehem. They had Moses and the prophets. They had them memorized. They knew the Psalms and the promises and the warnings. They, they had Isaiah 53. And they didn't believe any of it. When the Messiah came, they had Him put to death. But these men... They didn't have a religious upbringing. They didn't have a Bible or access even to one. They were rough men. They were far from home. Pagans, probably. Little idols in their tents. And yet when they see Jesus lifted up, they believe. Look, there is no amount of, of, of ignorance that can't be overcome by Christ. You say, well, I need, to, I need to learn more and more and more and more, and then I'll come to Christ. No, you come to Christ. Then you can worry about learning as much as you want about Him. But the first steps with Jesus are the first steps with Jesus. And they begin with believing what you know, that He is the Son of God who came to die for our sins and was raised on the third day. When these Romans see Jesus lifted up, they believe. And they fulfill John 12, 32. It says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. And these are the first fruits of our salvation, and they're given to Christ. The third exaltation, the third way Jesus exalted in this passage, are by the women surrounding the cross. They're ministering to Him. They've been with Him from Galilee to Golgotha. Uh, in fact, when the apostles learn about the resurrection, they actually learn about it from these women who were there. And Luke, in his gospel, he has the most de detail of any gospel writer about the words that were spoken at the cross and what happened there. And the reason he does is because he interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother, who was there at the cross. Now, these women were courageous and they would not leave Him. Now, but maybe you're familiar with history and you think, well, that's good and all. That's good that they're there. But how is that exalting? 
In the ancient world, it would have been a kind of embarrassment. I mean, imagine a great dignitary today. They come to visit a nation, and not a single leader goes out to meet them, only their spouses. It would be insulting, wouldn't it? Well, the same was true in the ancient world. It would have been an insult for a great king or a great emperor to be uh, associated and surrounded only by women. But our Lord isn't like ancient kings or emperors. He is, no, he, is, he is near to the brokenhearted. He cares for the lowly. And His exaltation is not like earthly kings would want to be exalted. And He doesn't even want to be exalted like earthly kings would want to be exalted. He is exalted as the Prince of Heaven and is exalted with heavenly principles. And the fact that the lowly and those of little concern and those without any strength or power would come and mourn Him is not part of His humiliation, but is a badge of honor. Uh, even though the Pharisees wouldn't see it that way, the Lord does. His heart goes out to the widows and the orphans and the hungry and the defenseless. It reminds me of uh, George Mueller. He was a faithful follower of Christ from Germany, but living in Bristol, England. And he raised thousands of dollars to care for orphans. He raised the money through prayer. And, and his, the goal of his life was to give glory to God by means of caring for these orphans. He gave his life to this task. And when he died in his early 90s, the streets along the funeral procession were lined not with dignitaries or businessmen, though I'm sure there were a few of them, but the streets were lined with little children, with orphans. And it might not have looked like much in the eyes of the world, but it was appropriate. And the man would have wanted nothing less. In the same way, by the women at the cross, the loving, merciful, gentle, humble character of Christ is exalted. He's not glorified in the same way earthly kings are glorified. He is exalted by the kindness of His grace. Why do you think He saves people like us? He is exalted by displaying His broad-heartedness and bringing in the weak. He delights to receive the lowly and the outcast and the downcast. And He is exalted when He draws near to Him the least of these. And finally, He is exalted in His burial. Here we're introduced to somebody new. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a town about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. It's probably a, another name for the hometown of the prophet Samuel. And, uh, and he really, Joseph, comes out of nowhere. He's not mentioned anywhere until this point. But here, and all of a sudden, a secret disciple of Jesus emerges, one we haven't heard of before, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of the Lord so that he can bury it. Now, Roman law stipulated that it was illegal for crucified criminals to be taken down. The Roman custom was to leave them on the cross until they rotted away. And if they were to be buried at all, it would only happen with the express permission of the imperial magistrate, in this case, Pilate. If you wanted to take someone off of a cross, you needed permission from whoever was in charge of the land. And even then, 
a person who was charged with treason, the crime Jesus was accused of, was never allowed to be taken down from their cross. But in this moment, in the beginning of the vindication of the Lord, an exceedingly wealthy man steps forward and asks if he can have the body of Christ and give him not just a proper burial, but a burial fit for a leader of God's people. He wants to give Jesus a rich man's burial. He comes with 75 pounds of of, of, of uh, spices and oils and ointments and, and he takes Jesus to place him in an ornate tomb. Now imagine Joseph, his risk and his influence. He goes to the governor's residence after hours seeking a meeting and he actually gets one. And not only does he get one, but his request that is against the customs and the norms, it's granted. This is a man of some influence and means. He's a, a prominent individual, and more than that, the favor of the Lord is on him and he's in his seeking to bring honor to Christ. Not only that, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. John tells us in his gospel, he tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple, one who loved the Lord, but did not speak openly out of fear of the religious leaders. Very similar to Nicodemus who comes along to help Joseph prepare the body for burial. So Jesus now is attended by some of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord is exalted by the displays of divine power. He is exalted by the Gentiles confessing Him. He is exalted by His accepting of the lowly. And now He is exalted by being served by the mighty. Now I want you to consider the bravery of Joseph. He had not yet openly declared his allegiance to Jesus because he knew what it would mean. He knew the moment I associate with him, the Sanhedrin, that's, the, that's like the, the, the Jewish parliament. The moment I associate with Jesus, my position there is over. When I go and ask Pilate to bury his body, I will not be in the Sanhedrin anymore. They won't have me there. I might even get kicked out of the synagogue. I could imperil my wealth and my family. It will be very costly to associate with Jesus. And even though we don't know much about Joseph or what happened to him, some very fanciful traditions that probably aren't true, we do know what happened to Nicodemus because of Nicodemus' faithfulness to Christ. And we have what happened to Nicodemus from a Jewish Perspective, And the reason I bring up Nicodemus is because he and Joseph are, are in the same boat. And what happened to one probably happened to the other. And you can take it for what it is. Things may have happened very differently. This is the history of Nicodemus from a Jewish perspective. For those of you who don't know, that's a, a negative perspective. But this is what their tradition says. It says Nicodemus was the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. And uh, his name, th this is not tradition, his name means, the name Nicodemus means conqueror of the people. Now if you're going to give your son the name conqueror of the people, you're probably going to be sitting in a pretty high position of authority. Right, to have the gall to do that, to name your son conqueror or victorious over everyone. It's a high position this man holds. 
Tradition tells us he was baptized by Peter and John. He confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior and then was excommunicated by the Pharisees and banished from Jerusalem. His family was reduced to total poverty. That was so severe, his daughter had to dig in dung piles to find undigested grain so they could eat. The Jews hated him. They refused to help him in any way. And then an early church historian, hundreds of years later, he refers to an ancient document that said Nicodemus was martyred for his devotion to Christ and that a mob surrounded him and beat him to death. Now that's what the uh, tradition says. It's, it's unlikely to be true. But at the very least, you, you get a sense that the people who, by and large, lived in Jerusalem and were in authority and were writing the accounts, they didn't think very highly of anyone who would associate with Jesus Christ. You get a sense that for someone to confess Jesus in Jerusalem in the first century, it is going to cost them. And the same would have been true for Joseph. I mean, certainly he wouldn't be able to remain in the Sanhedrin. Certainly his reputation is going to suffer. It would be costly to honor Christ. But for the praise and for the honor and for the exaltation of his Lord, no risk was too great. And I hope the same can be said for us. I hope when we think of Christ, we don't... When we count the cost, we don't count it and think it's so high. It's not so high. Christ is worthy of our worship, of our association, certainly. There is no loss when you lose for Christ. There is no loss when you lose for Him. So don't be afraid to be a Christian. And if you're hiding it, don't be afraid to be public about it. And that doesn't mean you have to be loud and obnoxious and, and get a tattoo of a cross on your forehead. Sometimes that's what people think it means. I'm going to be a real Christian now. I'm going to put the cross jewelry on. Don't shy away from being associated with Christ. Don't keep Him in the background of your life, only bringing Him up when it's convenient. Don't be a Christian secretly. Whatever has been causing you to do that, maybe you're afraid of an employer or what your family will think or what a certain family member will think. Maybe you're afraid of what your coworkers will say. Don't be fearful any longer. And, and don't be afraid to take risks for Christ. And don't be afraid to take Him by the hand and go further with Him. Don't be afraid to wear that association openly. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Exalt Christ by owning Him and embracing Him publicly, not privately. Everyone that you know should know you're a Christian. Well, you take all of this together, all of the, the people who are there, what's happening at the foot of the cross, and you see another exaltation of Christ. He is exalted in a kind of proto-church. Because what do you have in these verses? You have people 
from every walk of life uniting around Jesus Christ. You have the poor and the rich. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have men and women. You have those of high standing and those of low standing. And they are being brought together at the cross. You know, there's a lot of talk about unity and diversity and inclusivity today. But in the name of achieving those things, all that's created is discord and chaos and division. Because no worldly wisdom can ever unite anything. It divides and devours. And if you want proof, all you have to do is look at any human endeavor to create this kind of unity and inclusivity. It ends in disaster. I mean, look around you today. The world is striving more for unity now than it ever has. Is it more unified than ever? Absolutely not. Because the only place that you will ever find true unity and the only place you will ever find anyone included the only place you will ever find a diverse, united group of people is at the foot of the cross where they have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the world's kind of inclusivity where everyone comes and does whatever they want and it's okay. You get to be whatever you want to be. I'm talking about the only true unity that is possible where everyone comes to Christ and is united under His banner. There are no two people alike. There are no two group of people alike. And what God does, what the Lord does when you come to Him is He takes that, He takes you as you are, and He begins to purify you. He declares you righteous before Him, and then He begins to make you clean, actually, and separate things from you culturally, from your background that are sinful, personally that are sinful, so that all that you bring is made pure in Christ. And before the cross, there is unity from every walk and background, socioeconomic class, every ethnic division in all of the world. And you only find this in the church. You only find it where the Lord is and He is exalted by it. And the only way anyone ever becomes a part of it is by confessing Christ and then come and associate and join with Him. And if you haven't done that this morning and you're looking for the place of unity, you're looking for the place where you can be forgiven, you're looking for the one place in the world where this takes place, it's in the church. You'll find it nowhere else. Come to Christ. He's the only door in. It's a hard way. It's worth it in the end. And Christ is worthy of your worship, of your association, of your exaltation, and of your very life. So if you haven't come to Him this morning, come to Him today and know what it means to follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for your church. What a beautiful thing it is, Lord. And it is. There is nowhere like it in all of the world. It's the only kingdom that will endure. Thank you that you are its glorious head and you will never lead us astray. I thank you that 
Lord, we who once were not your people now can be called your people. And you've drawn us in with cords that cannot be broken. We have no claim on you. We have no right to eternal life. But in your generosity and in your gracious kindness, you have welcomed us in and poured out mercy with both hands. And Lord, you associate with the least of these. No one is too low for your grasp to reach them, but many are too high and too exalted in their own thoughts. Lord, you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. And I pray that we would all humble ourselves before you, that we would know your grace and your mercy. That we would exalt you and you would draw near to us. Thank you for your many precious promises that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to love you better than we do. You cannot love us better than you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.